And now, ladies and gentlemen, right to your hosts of Down the Garden Path, Joanne Shaw and Matthew Dressing. Welcome to the ninth season of Down the Garden Path, where each week we discuss down-to-earth tips and advice while doing our best to help you seasonally manage your garden and landscape. I'm Joanne Shaw, owner of Down-to-Earth Landscape Design, and with me is my co-host and co-author, Matthew Dressing. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. I'm Matthew Dressing, owner of Natural Affinity Garden Design. Landscape designers and gardeners, we believe it's important and possible to have great gardens, which are sustainable and low maintenance, and we want to help you make it happen. That's right. And for tonight, nestled in the hills of Hawkinson, Delaware, the Mount Cuba Center, whose mission is to, quote, inspire an appreciation for the beauty and value of native plants and a commitment to protect the habitats that sustain them. Today, we are joined by Sam Hoadley from the Mount Cuba Center to talk about his latest research on Carex and the other exciting projects at the Mount Cuba Center. Do you have questions about the Carex growing in your garden? Do you wonder what Carex is? Or about horticultural research at the Mount Cuba Center? Write us at Down the Garden Path Podcast at hotmail.com. And a little bit about Sam before he joins us. Uh, Sam Hoadley is the manager of horticultural research at Mount Cuba Center, where he evaluates native plant species, old and new cultivars, and hybrids in the trial garden. Sam has earned his degree in sustainable landscape horticulture from the University of Vermont. Welcome to the show, Sam. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're very excited for you to join us to tell us all about your amazing research and all of the uh, wonderful sustainable initiatives at Mount Cuba and uh, lots of interesting plant facts. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about Mount Cuba Center? Sure. So Mount Cuba Center is a uh, public garden located in northern Delaware. Um, We are focused on native plants and their conservation. Um, We were the former estate of um, the DuPont Copeland family. Um, and it was kind of always their intent to eventually open up their home to visitors to, again, try to inspire them by the beauty and value of native plants. This was um, Pamela Copeland, our founder's kind of intention, which lives on today, is our mission. I and mean, really, everything we do at Mount Cuba Center ties back to that mission in some way, including what we do in the trial garden. We're evaluating plants for their beauty, um, hopefully inspiring people by their beauty um, and also their value, whether these plants would be able to support wildlife in your home landscape. Um, so yeah, it's really exciting. Again, focus on native plants um, in the Eastern United States um, and trying to help people make good informed decisions about what plants to choose for their home gardens. Wonderful. So as you say, the Eastern United States, do you have, because we have a lot of Canadian listeners as well, do sure. you have kind of a range that your native plants kind of fall in for quote unquote Eastern United States? Sure. So we generally say like Eastern US is like Mississippi and East. Um, and then Mount Cuba Center has a little bit more of a um, specific view on what we consider to be native in the gardens, which is the, the Piedmont ecoregion. So this is kind of the, the eastern foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. But in the trial garden, we encompass everything. I should say eastern North America, because a lot of these species do have ranges that extend up into Canada as well. Um, and that's really kind of the larger focus that we take on in the trial garden to try to encompass as much plant material as we possibly can in our evaluations. 
Okay. With zone, would you say, like, do you kind of look at zones at all? So we're really just evaluating plants for their suitability in the mid-Atlantic region. So this would be kind of the middle eastern side of the United States um, in Delaware, southern New Jersey, um, Pennsylvania, Maryland, um, Virginia. Um, but as, and we right here are about a zone, a USDA zone 6B, 7A, depending on the winter. We're probably like an eight or a nine this winter because it just really hasn't gotten that cold yet. Um, it's yeah. been a little bit weird. Um, so we're really kind of evaluating what does well here, um, not okay. necessarily putting them through the test as far as cold hardiness goes, but I think a lot of the plants that we put through our evaluations would likely do a lot better, do really well in more northern climates as well. Okay, that's good to know. So what, when you say evaluation, so what kind of things are you evaluating plants for? What are you looking for during your trials? Yeah, so when we're, so we're evaluating them from those two perspectives, you know, the beauty, or I would say like ornamental qualities, horticultural value of these plants. Um, so that can be anything from the habit of these plants, the foliage, the form. It's a little bit subjective, but once you kind of know what you're looking for, you kind of hone in on those details, it kind of does become a little bit more scientific um, and um, quantitative in a way. Um, and then uh, with the pollinator or wildlife value, we're looking at things like pollinator visits to try to measure their in, their potential impact if, to wildlife if you were to include those plants um, in your home garden. So we generally are evaluating these plants on a weekly basis in a window of the growing season, generally starting in May, ending in September, depending on the trial. And we're evaluating these plants every single week during that period. Um, when we're looking at pollinator evaluations, it's every single day when those plants are in bloom. Okay. Wow. Amazing. So one of the plants that you recently finished up some research were uh, the groups we know as Carex or the yeah. genus that we know as Carex. So tell us a little bit about why you decided to jump into the research about Carex. So Carex are kind of one of those um, underutilized and unsung garden heroes, I think. Um, and Mount Cuba Center, we, when we are planning our evaluations, we're always trying to think about, you know, what questions are we trying to answer here? Um, what's our goals? And at times we are trying to promote unsung heroes in the garden world, plants that we think deserve kind of a platform and we can give them that platform. Um, at other times, we're just trying to help gardeners untangle maybe a mess of different cultivars. If you think better echinacea trial, um, that was only a couple of species, but many, many different cultivars. There's so many options for people out there just trying to narrow it down and help people make good decisions, um, kind of, you know, cut through the noise that's out there. Um, but with Carex, it's just there. We think they are such great plants. We use them extensively in our in our naturalistic gardens at Mount Cuba. Um, we think that they're versatile, useful in so many so many ways in the gardens, both the naturalistic um, and in other forms, um, such as lawn replacements, which is something we actually looked into. Mm -hmm. um, but we just thought that this group of plants needed a champion, and we wanted to promote them for all the good values we think that they have. That's amazing. Excellent. I yeah. So what is actually, just maybe for some of our listeners who don't know what Carex is or never had them, what, what is a Carex? Like, what kind of plant is it and what does it do and why is it special? Sure. So I guess we'll get a little technical here, but I'll try to stay, you know, <laughs> okay. details as much as possible. <laughs> um, so Carex are grass-like perennials, um, but they are in their, their own family, the Cyperaceae family. Um, and they are under all the plants under that family are are collectively referred to as sedges. So Carex is a genus within the Cyperaceae family, um, along with other sedges such as Cyperus, um, such as Scurpus, which you may have heard of. 
Um, but Carex is, a, is the largest genus in that group, and it's an incredibly diverse genus. There are hundreds of species of Carex in North America. Um, and what's really interesting about them is that they're all herbaceous perennials. Um, if you think about other large um, families, um, such as grasses, you have annual grasses, you have perennial grasses, and you even have woody grasses. Think about bamboo. Um, but with Carex, even though they are found across the world um, in many different habitats, they are all perennials, which is really, really interesting. But a really cool, really diverse group of plants. They can be found in a variety of habitats. Um, we say, you know, shaded swamps all the way through coastal um, coastal dunes even. Um, so there really are Carex that grow all over. Um, and because of that, there really is a, a Carex for almost every garden that's out there. Um, but yeah, just a really cool group of plants. Um, there's that really fun rhyme said just have edges, rushes around, and grasses have nodes from their tips to the ground. And there's a couple versions for grasses, but those are good ways to kind of separate out those three major groups that kind of look very similar. Um, but carrots do have those triangular stems. They're solid on the inside. Um, and that really does kind of give you that first step into identifying the plant that you're looking at. I um, mean, carrots have some other really interesting anatomical features that'll help you identify them from other sedges. That's amazing. I love the little, what was the little rhyme that you said? I've never heard that. Yeah, it's a, so sedges have edges. Um, and that's like, that's the biggest thing you have to remember. If you see a triangular stem that's solid, that looks like a grass, you're probably looking at a sedge. Um, and it's very possible you're looking at a carex. The real kind of difficulty comes when you're trying to separate out carex from other sedges, but there's some pretty easy ways to determine that, looking at some of their foliage, looking at their flowers and at their seeds, at their fruit structures. Um, but then rushes are round, so another grass-like perennial. Um, they have round stems. When you when you were to cut open a rush stem, they are kind of have like the spongy pith on the inside, but but solid. Um, and okay. then if you cut a grass stem open, um, those stems are hollow and round. Um, so that's a really good way to tell them apart. And grasses also have these very um, large, swollen, pronounced nodes. Carex and sedges have nodes as well, but they're very subtle and a little bit difficult to find at times. That's so much fun. That's amazing. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's a good, it's an easy thing to remember. And it's just a good reminder when you're out in the field or in your garden, you mm -hmm. can just go back to that and that gets you that first step. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. You've actually answered uh, one of our first questions from Karen said, uh, hello, a new word slash term for me. Uh, what is a Carex? Thank you so much. So hopefully Karen Sam has been able to answer your question. Mm -hmm. And I think Poor, poor uh, G-Man um, thought we said carrots. Oh. So we need to pronounce better, I guess. Gotcha. So we, gotcha. we are talking about carex. Uh, yes, so slightly yeah. different so thank plans. You. Yes. That's right. That's right. So, uh, yes. so yeah. <laughs> so imagine the word care with an X on the end of it. That's right. So carex. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We also have uh, Henry's written in and says, hello, when you say native plants uh are those plants typically grown in a special location i'm not sure i think you touched a little bit about that already um but do you and the mount cuba center have a specific definition that you define as a, a native plant you were saying the piedmont ecoregion yeah so those are so we have a couple definitions of native and it really kind of depends on you kind of have to make that definition for yourself um, so our definition is that Piedmont ecoregion, and then the trial gardens definition of quote native is Eastern United States or Eastern North America. Um, 
I know people who get as specific as saying like, you know, I'm, I want to only grow plants that are native to Northern Delaware. And it kind of just depends on your goals and your home landscape or, or what you're kind of okay. going for. If you're going for like hyper locally na- native, um, which is, you know, an admirable goal, sometimes difficult to do just because of plant availability. Um, but there are, there is that level of native and there's, you know, some people consider all of the plants that grow in North America to be native plants. So just kind of mm-hmm. determining what your goals are. Um, what you consider to be native is kind of one of those first questions you need to answer for yourselves. Okay. That's wonderful. Yeah. Great definition. Yeah. It does really kind of come down to what you, you want your own goals and what you see as native for sure. Um, so going back to our carics, you evaluated over 70 different types of carics uh, in your research. So what were some of the factors that uh, you used to evaluate all 70 different specimens? We're yes. all 70 native. Sorry to interrupt. Great yes. question. Yeah. Yeah. Like I had no idea that that there, you know, I would have thought it would be like hostas and they've been hybridized like crazy, but there's 70 varieties of native. 70 varieties of native. And most of those were species and uh, our trials can vary a little bit. So I mentioned the echinacea trial before there was, I think five species that we evaluated. And then I think it was 65 different cultivars. It was the exact opposite with the carex, where we had 65 species and five cultivars. So these are um, plants that are, you know, mo- we're evaluating mostly species. There aren't that many cultivars out there of our native carex. Um, and most of those plants were commercially available, although a handful were provided to us by our uh, state botanist, um, Bill McAvoy, who was able to get us some locally native species that aren't very commonly grown in horticulture. Um, but it was a really cool group of plants. Um, there, you could, in theory, collect carrots like hosta. There are enough of them out there. Um, in Delaware alone, I believe it's, there's 137 species that are native to our, you know, tiny little Delaware, um, which is totally amazing. Um, but again, there's not that many that are truly available. So 70 is probably a good representative number, a cross section of what's out there in the trade right now. Okay. Wow. That's a lot um, of species. <laughs> it is. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, it's neat, and it but it is really kind of a drop in the bucket about of what's out there. Um, and uh, really, what we were looking for in this trial, in other trials, we we're evaluating, you know, plant form and habit, what we call the overall plant score that we give every single week. Um, there's another score for flowers. There's another score for disease resistance. Um, with the carrots trial, we were really kind of focused on the plants overall. We weren't really giving them bonus points for, for attractive flowers, although some of them do have attractive flowers. Mm. Um, disease really wasn't an issue, so we weren't too concerned about disease resistance scores. We were just concerned with that overall plant score, which really kind of, they were represented by, you know, good foliage, full habits, um, and, you know, a long season of ornamental value in your home landscape. Um, and a lot of those plants did exceptionally well. And I should mention that we grew all 70 of these plants in both full sun and shade to kind of compare their tolerance to both conditions and to see, you know, where those comfort zones might be for these 70 different carex. And now for the carex that you found, and I understand these are going to be very native to Delaware, but do you find overall, does the group have a preference full sun to full shade? It kind of depends, but it was very surprising to me how many of these plants did really well in both conditions. Um, And this really, this has a lot of implications in home landscapes, especially if you think about, like if you have a garden um, where you have, you know, a shady bed right next to a full sun bed, you can use some of these carrot species as a common design element to kind of tie those two landscapes together, um, which is just really great. It just, it was, to me, it just showed how adaptable these plants are, even when they're grown kind of outside of their, quote, wild comfort zones. Okay. 
um, how tolerant they are to some of these adverse um, conditions. Wow. And now did you take any of the species from this trial? Are they, or did you take any of them, or do you know that any of them are currently also being researched? Or are you looking at furthering the research in different areas to kind of push those limits and those traits that you researched? Yeah, so so we were really just kind of looking at what their performance would be and what we consider to be average garden conditions in the mid-Atlantic region. So this trial would be wonderful to have it repeated in New England or the southeastern United States or in um, you know central Canada. It would be great to have this repeated in as many places with you know just almost the same sets of plants because you may find different results depending on where you're gardening. Um, but what we were doing is just kind of putting them through their through their paces in in our region. Um, and just seeing how they're going to do in essentially um, a neglected garden. Um, I mean, we're caring for these plants, we're caring for the garden, but we're sort of neglecting the plants, um, which is sort of the point. We want to have these plants perform well with very limited inputs from the gardener. Okay. So no extra water, no extra... Only extra water in the first year, and this trial ran for actually five years. Four years of it were kind of a regular evaluation, and then one year we did our mowing trial. But for that first year, we were watering sparingly during um, dry periods just to get those plants established. After that, those plants were on their own. Um, And it was just, again, fascinating to see how tough they were with very limited care, especially full sun. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I like that they're, they're so versatile. Um, you mentioned mowing trial. So what is a, what is a mowing trial? Is it so, kind of self-explanatory? Um, yeah, well, no, it, it was kind of an, it was kind of a happy um, accident that this happened. So we had these, these plants in for an extra year. Um, the pandemic kind of put everything in the trial garden on hold. So we had an extra year at the end to play with, and, um, we weren't going to plan to be replacing the carrots for an additional year. So we said, you know, what else could we do for this trial that might add a little extra value here? And there's a lot of talk about using Carex as lawn replacements as a sustainable option, you know, lower maintenance than turf grass. Um, there's a lot of Carex that could be really suitable to um, replace turf grass lawns in kind of a no-mo situation where you maybe only have to maintain that area maybe once or twice a year. And it will just give you kind of that naturalistic meadowy look. But we thought, you know, how are these plants going to respond to potentially being mowed? Are they going to be similar to turf grass? Will they give you a similar aesthetic? Are they going to even tolerate this treatment? Um, so this kind of seemed like an opportunity where we could take all these plants and mow them for an entire season and just see what they did, whether it was good or bad or ugly. Yeah. And there was all of that in there. But kind of the amazing take home message was that a lot of these plants were incredibly tolerant to that treatment. And then there's a handful of plants that actually look like turf grass. Um, there's kind of some unanswered questions still um, where we don't know how they would handle foot traffic and kind of the wear and tear of what we would expect for, from turf grass. But some of these plants look great and they have some uses. Um, I mean, they're going to be lower maintenance. We never watered them. We never fertilized them. There are some of these carex that actually can handle drier conditions than your typical um, turf grass lawns. Um, so there's there might be some niche uses for mode carex lawns. Um, I don't, but you know, it's kind of up to you to see how you would want to utilize it. Right. But it's possible and it's totally doable. I could just see this field that you were taking care of for four years yeah. and somebody standing there with a lawnmower going, oh my, like, oh, yeah. what am I going to do? You know, yeah. like, just that. Uh, did you yeah. get to do that or just? I did. Yeah, we did it. We did? We, okay. 
We did it every two weeks. I think we started first week of May and we ended end of August. I think it's like kind of your your quote lawn season, if you will. Right. Um, right. And we set the the push mower deck as high as we could at four inches and we just did it every two weeks. And it was truly amazing. I mean, even plants that didn't look good, they didn't look like your turf grass lawns. They were surprisingly tolerant. There were very few carrot species that really did not accept that treatment at all. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things, too, that there might be implications for the nursery industry. If you have a plant that's outgrowing its pot, um, you can cut that plant back. At, it seems like almost any time of the year without too many adverse effects for these plants. So that was another kind of, you know, um, kind of lesson that we learned along the way. That, yeah. Again, these plants are incredibly tolerant of even what I would consider to be abuse um, in a cultivated yeah. setting. Yeah. Interesting. Any evaluation regarding winter interest at all? So with carrots, we did um, we did note whether they were evergreen or deciduous, and we have that um, mentioned in. Uh, we actually have a downloadable spreadsheet with basically all the traits you could oh. imagine for all of these different carrots, which That's can help you make and make decisions and make lists for your home landscape of plants that might work for you or what goals you're looking for. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of these carrots that actually do look quite good over the winter. Um, several of them are as close to evergreen as we could get, um, including Carex plantaginea and Carex um, cherokeensis. I'm sure Carex plantaginea would be hardy for you. Carex cherokeensis would be worth giving it a try. But they are really beautiful plants, particularly if you protect them from a little bit of um, winter sun. They're going to be really beautiful and dark green all winter for you. Wow. So. As you say, it's available on your website. I don't think we've really said anything about the website. Uh, so you can go to mountcubacenter.org. Mount spelt just the short form MT. Yep. So MT Cuba Center. Uh, center is uh, E-R versus R-E. Some yep. of our maybe Correct. Canadian listeners. <laughs> right, uh, right, right, right. .org. Yeah, um, and the backslash research, and you can get to all the trial garden information. And I should mention, we we write up all of our results in these research reports, um, which kind of highlight the best of the best, and a lot of you know how to use them in the garden, um, wildlife value, the ecological lessons that we learned from these various trials. All that information is on our website. You can download the PDF forms of those reports for free, and we have descriptions of every single plant that went through our trial ever. Um, even the plants that didn't do so well, because we like to try to talk about maybe why they didn't do so well. And especially with the Carex trial, we are promoting these top plants, these top 16 plants from our trial. Um, but because this is so species heavy, there's not a bad species. It's just these, there are plants that are tolerant of the conditions we put them through. There are other plants that maybe wanted the soil to be drier. Maybe they wanted the soil to be more wet. And we have lists on our website and in our research report um, of those plants for people who might have, you know, wetter, wetter than average garden soils or drier than average garden soils, where those those plants might actually be a perfect fit for their home landscapes. Wow. That's awesome now, information. Yeah. Now, do growers, like, so I get that your information is on the website, and I can't wait, because as landscape designers, to all have something new or better to put in people's gardens, is, our clients' gardens is great. But do you also, like, push this information out to growers, or do growers look, are they're sitting there waiting for you guys to finish your study so that they can adjust? Because I right away want to send the spreadsheet to our local growers and, sure. and give them that information. Like, is that the goal? Yeah, so so our two big target audiences are, are homeowners, people who are you know ultimately gardening with these native plants, but also the nursery industry because they, they really kind of go hand in hand. If the nursery industry doesn't have the information, they're not producing these plants, it's not available to the homeowners. Right. So we really want to be both promoting the demand and the supply of these plants. 
Um, and recently, we've really been trying to take steps to proactively communicate some of our results early to the nursery industry, even with, you know, with that caveat that the trial's not over yet, but at year two out of year three, uh, out of, uh, you know, a three-year trial, these plants are the ones that are looking really, really good. And these are the ones we're probably going to be promoting at the end of this pending some un unforeseen circumstance where the plant might crash in the third year, which is very unusual. Um, right. So we've been trying to get that information out a little bit earlier just to give a little bit of lead time. So that if a nursery were to want to start producing some of these plants that we found um, that are really great, um, they'd have a little bit of time to prepare for that. And now would they have to go out and find the species that you're recommending themselves? Or, or do you have contacts? Do you help local nurseries and find the supply of the plant material as well? A little bit of both. So if, if it's a plant that is already commercially available and may just not be grown very much, um, it would be kind of up to the nursery to, to you know, procure those plants and put them in production. If it's a plant that um, maybe we collected that is not out in the nursery industry, um, we would be taking steps to try to infuse that into the nursery trade, um, to you know, distributing that to, to nurseries that you know, we think would be a good fit for that type of plant material. Um, and I think that's going to happen more and more as we do more of these species-heavy trials where some of these plants just might not be grown, and we may have the only source currently of it. Mm -hmm. um, so again, trying to get those plants into the hands of the nurseries so that they can get those plants into the hands of homeowners where we're really making a conservation difference. Okay. Wow. And as you say, nursery industry, um, what about sod farms? Are there any yeah. non-alternative companies who are interested in your research as well? I think someone needs to get on it. Um, okay. <laughs> it was, um, I think it would be very interesting. It might be a very niche market, but um, I'll tell you what, some of those carrots, when we we actually had to rotate out the trial because we're, you know, when a trial ends, it has to come out and we make room for the new trial. So um, when we removed the carrots that were in the full sun, a couple of these plants that are rhizomatous that really make those beautiful mats like carrots pennsylvanica, um, carrots woodii, we were able to cut them just like sod and roll them up just like you would see at a sod farm. Um, it was incredible. Um, and I was just wow. like, well, here's your here's your turf grass. You could just roll this right back out somewhere. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, in theory, you could do it. And I think there could be a niche market out there someday. Who knows? And so did you mention that in the, the research notes that like maybe available on the website that you could roll it like sod or? I don't know if we ever did. I have pictures of it and just because I was like, this is wild. But um, yeah. <laughs> but it was very, um, very interesting. And, um, you know, those those rhizomatous species in particular, I mentioned Pennsylvanica and Woody Eye are, are really good candidates for lawn replacements just because they are rhizomatous. They're constantly kind of knitting together and they do form these mats. Um, they hold the soil together really well. There are other carex species that did handle the mowing really well, looked good, but they were more plump forming species. Um, which that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you may have mm -hmm. to plant more of them to kind of make a, you know, a continuous planting um, where these other species are going to, you know, really knit together and constantly mend themselves over time. Okay. Very cool. So to a gardener's uh, point of view, does that mean that they're invasive, like in the sense that they kind of take over? Yeah, I, and I think carrots do kind of have a little bit of a reputation for being aggressive, and I, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's earned in most cases. I think most okay. of these carrot species are, um, you know, you know, if you will, well-behaved in cultivation. I will say there were a couple of species out there that I would classify as aggressive, but I wouldn't necessarily say that's a bad thing. I would just say, you know, maybe w when you're planting a garden, maybe kind of know that and, and plan accordingly. Like maybe mm -hmm. you may, wouldn't want to plant carrots and morii 
or Carrick's trichocarpa in a small home garden because they spread rapidly via underground rhizomes. But in the right situation, that could actually be an advantage. Like if you are trying to stabilize a wet bank, if you want to colonize a wet sunny meadow really quickly and maybe kind of edge out other invasive species, those could be really, really good candidates for that situation. So it's just making about informed decisions about the strengths and weaknesses of these plants. But those two species were the only plants that I would consider to be aggressive out of the 70 that we trialed. There were other plants that spread by rhizomes, as I mentioned, Pennsylvanica and Woody Eye, but they do so rather slowly and they're gonna kind of colonize and, and twine between other plants and not gonna overrun your garden or outcompete those other plants. Um, in actuality, I think they actually do a great job in kind of you know tying the entire garden together, kind of putting that base layer in your landscape, suppressing weeds, um, adding that nice base um, texture, covering up even those kind of bare stems at the, at the base of other perennials that might be taller. They have a lot of great value um, just from an ornamental and landscape perspective. Amazing. So just before we finish off kind of our, what did we learn? Were there were anything else, any other amazing Carex results that you want to share about, about the trial? Sure. So, so we are always looking at, you know, we look at these plants from those two perspectives and I've talked a lot about their, you know, ornamental and landscape qualities. Um, but carrots were kind of a challenge to measure their ecological value. Mm -hmm. um, because they're wind pollinated, we weren't able to look at, you know, a pollinator interaction like we would have been able to look at with our hydrangea study or with our echinacea study. Um, so we weren't actually able to kind of measure the individual plants potential ecological value if you were to plant them at home. But it doesn't mean that nothing's happening. It's just a little bit more subtle and it's a little harder to observe from a scientific perspective. Um, but we did see a lot of interaction. So carrots are, do a great job at providing habitats, um, habitat for a um, number of species of invertebrates, um, mammals, birds. Um, they provide food for um, from their fruit for small mammals and birds as well. Um, and the plants themselves can be host plants for a variety of butterflies and moths. And we actually, when we started to look for these caterpillars, we started to find them. And in a couple situations, we actually saw the adult form of that, of that caterpillar and moth um, later on. And so we were seeing this one insect complete its entire life cycle within the trial garden, which was fascinating. And again, just kind of, um, I don't know, it, it really kind of makes you think about what you can do in your home landscape and how much value you can be providing, even in a relatively small footprint. Um, and Carrick's are providing that value as well. It might not be the showiest value. You might not be able to see that pollinator interaction, but there's a lot going on there. I um, mean, there's some really cool um, wildlife interactions that you wouldn't be able to necessarily see in your home garden, but are happening out in the wild all the time. Um, there was one really neat relationship between an endangered bog turtle, which is North America's smallest turtle, and Carex stricta. Um, and we've been working with the state of Delaware to grow Carex stricta um, from Delaware, which has been brought to us. We propagated it and given it back to the state, who has then planted it in suitable bog turtle habitat. And we're seeing clutches of eggs being laid in these mounds that Carex, egg, the Carex stricta makes in these wetlands. So it's working. Conservation in action is actually working. And it's just this really cool, fascinating relationship that this Carex has with like an endangered species. Um, yeah. So there's there's a really neat story about that in the in the report. I encourage you to read it. Um, it's it was yeah, it's totally fun and totally cool. 
Oh, that's great. It is good to know because I think we all, when you think of pollinators, we're all thinking about something that flowers, right? Sure. And, uh, and so it is good to know that other insects and like you said, birds, and to see that whole life cycle from caterpillar to butterfly. Um, I know Doug Tallamy talks a lot about like plant specialists or like, in, yep. you know, specialists. Like, did you determine, was there a specialist there? I'm sure there were, and it would have been great to spend a lot more time identifying some of those caterpillars we saw. Yeah. Um, one of them was a yellow-collared scape moth, which does specialize on other sedges, um, carex included. And it's also a semi-specialist on goldenrods, which is another plant that we're trialing. So we saw the caterpillars of this moth on the carex in our trial, and then we saw the adults on the goldenrods in our trial, which was, again, totally cool. You could see, yes. you know, all stages of this insect's life cycle being supported in our trial garden. Oh, that's cool. So horticulture, I love where horticulture and etymology kind of like meet, yeah. right? Oh, it's totally fun. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, that is that's very funny. cool. As we reach the bottom of the hour, I'm going to jump in and do my thing saying thank you everyone for joining us here live on Reality Radio 101. Thank you as well if you have downloaded or are streaming our podcast on your favorite podcast provider. I'm Matthew Dressing here with my co-host and co-author Joanne Shaw and you're listening to Down the Garden Path. Joanne and I enjoy hosting Down the Garden Path each week, bringing you interesting and relevant topics to help you achieve a great garden. We learn right along with you from our research and from the wonderful guests that join us here on the show, like Sam Hoadley, who is joining us from Mount Cuba Center, talking all about his research on Carex and the other wonderful plant research projects Mount Cuba has going on. Don't forget, you can spend more time with us down the garden path, Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Down the Garden Path Podcast. You can find us as well on your favorite podcast provider. And while you're there, please hit that subscribe button to be notified of new content. Please don't forget to like, share, and leave us a comment. We love hearing from you. And you can always write us here, Down the Garden Path Podcast at hotmail.com. So, Sam, as we're talking about uh, amazing Carrick's research. Uh, we were talking about lawns. We haven't moved into the Carrick's moving into uh, the lawn industry yet, but is the industry, have you heard anything about the Carrick's industry or, or the, the lawn industry moving into more perennial grasses or herbaceous grasses? Um, I think there's definitely a desire for alternatives and for lower maintenance and, you know, maybe more ecologically sustainable alternatives. And I think carrots always kind of rise to the list of those, you know, potential plants that could fill that niche. Um, I think there is kind of a desire and like a love for that, that turf grass look. And if we can give alternatives that perform a similar aesthetic, but maybe are lower maintenance um, and provide maybe a little bit more ecological value, I think that's kind of a win-win. Um, so I think it's something that I think we may see catch on, um, especially mm -hmm. in certain niches and home landscapes. Um, but I think it'd be really fun to just see how what people do with this information and how they use it in their home gardens going forward. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So we do have a question from uh, Hank. Uh, he's saying, uh, interesting show tonight. My question is, it, is it possible to propagate offshoots from Ooh. Carex grasses? Thank you. That was a good question. Good question, Hank. Yeah, so you can divide carrots actually quite easily, um, and um, if, if that's what you mean by offshoots, um, especially the rhizomatous species, those runners, you can easily remove and propagate that way. 
Um, carex are very easily um, divided in spring and fall, um, which would be the, my recommended times to, to you know, lift them and divide them. You can almost do it just like you would a hosta. Um, that's kind of when they're putting a lot of, there's a lot of active root growth at that time and the plants would recover relatively quickly, especially in those cooler seasons. Um, but yeah, it's totally doable, fairly straightforward, fairly easy. It's a good way to, to add, a, you know, relatively established plants relatively quickly in your home garden um, and share with neighbors and other gardeners as well. So Sam, you say cool seasons. Sometimes we'll talk about cool season grasses and our warm season grasses. Do carrots fall into the cool season, most of them? or? Yes, I believe it's all of them actually are Ooh. cool season perennials, which is really interesting. And one of the one of the things we kind of were unsure about um, what we would see is when we did that mowing study, I kind of expected these plants to bounce back relatively quickly in spring as they're putting on of active growth. Um, and you know that's the time when they're they're growing most is those cooler kind of bookends of the season in spring and fall. Um, I kind of expected to see a little bit of a slowdown in summer, but surprisingly that never happened. Um, these plants continued to grow even though they were kind of being, you know, all that material was being removed every two weeks during the summer, which was another kind of surprising find from that mowing study. But they are doing most of that active growing in spring and fall. Wonderful. Bob has a, a follow-up question as well. Hello, tonight garden show. Uh, when should you prune back or cut ornamental grasses? So maybe just looking through the lens of our, our carex is spring and you said spring and fall is really the best time to do that so we did when we in the trial garden we would do kind of a big spring cleanup or kind of late winter early spring um, we generally shot for around you know mid to late march there are some carrots that are blooming in march in the mid-atlantic including carrots plantagenia and carrots ebernia so blooming very very early and we always wanted to try to beat those blooms um, before they started to you know come out and um, and flower um, so we generally would do either a hand cut back, you can use it, um, you know, pruners or um, those little hand scythes that you can use for vegetable gardening. Those work really, really well. Um, and you kind of cut those plants back. Uh, you can cut the plants back um, kind of as hard as you want to. Um, you can cut it back from, you know, an inch or two above the soil, above the mulch surface. On some of the more semi-evergreen plants, you may not have to cut them back as hard um, just because there is still a lot of that green growth in the core of the plants. Um, and there's a couple of these species I would kind of recommend just to leave alone. Um, Carex plantagenia is one of those, the plantain leaves um, sedge. Um, the reason behind that is those plants are a little bit slower to come out and push on new growth in the spring. So they kind of have this awkward period where you've cut all those leaves and they just kind of sit there for a long period of time. Even especially plantagenia, it's bloomed and it just has these bloom spikes on what looks like kind of a, a nothing plant that has no uh, foliage at all. Um, so it takes a few weeks, but it eventually it does start to push new, foli new foliage out. I'd say if it is in a lot of winter sun and you are seeing a lot of tip burn on those leaves, you can just clean those up a little bit. Um, that's really all it would take. But it, it also depends on kind of the aesthetic you're going for in your garden. If your garden is more naturalistic and you don't mind some of that um, kind of straw colored foliage that, that may have been left over from the winter, you don't really have to do anything to it. It just kind of depends on what your aesthetics are, how kind of neat and tidy you want your landscape to be. Mm -hmm. Do some of those straw blades kind of like green up again? Like do they, I think of like Virginia, you know, where they kind of come back to life? They won't. It'll just, there'll be new foliage that'll come up from the crown and kind of cover them okay. up. But it cover won't them take up. long before that, before that happens. Mm -hmm. And there is some value in leaving some of that foliage. Um, it is providing, you know, cover and habitat for wildlife. Um, you know, it's, there is kind of a happy medium in there. I don't think you need yeah. to cut them back really hard. You can leave some of that material on. Um, yeah. you know, to keep 
some wildlife value for those plants. Yeah, which goes along with what I think many of us in the industry are trying to promote that we don't have to, the garden doesn't have to be put to bed and doesn't have to be cleaned up in the fall and we can have a, leave it a little um, quote unquote messy. Yeah, absolutely. For that exact reason, right? Because there's insects and and lots of uh, wildlife that we don't necessarily can see. We don't necessarily see it, but it doesn't mean that it's not happening, right? Exactly, exactly. So in your study, you said it looks like Carex woodii was the quote unquote winner. Yeah. Um, what do you think classified that as? Well, I'm sure you know, not think. <laughs> what? <laughs> what, what uh, how did it win? <laughs> so it just did everything exceptionally well. No matter what we threw at this plant, it it thrived in sun. It thrived in shade. It just it was just a very vigorous plant. It was an attractive plant. Um, it kind of checked all the boxes for us. Um, and Carex pennsylvanica, which is um, a very similar plant, um, it would fill a very similar landscape niche, and it's a very popular landscape plant as well, um, does a lot of things um, in a very similar way to Carex woodii. Um, Carex pennsylvanica um, kind of creates these, and woodii kind of creates these low mats of foliage. Um, you know, most of the season, it's going to be eight, nine inches high and just kind of create this, this ground cover. Um, Carex pennsylvanica, however, has... Um, it has some gaps in the growth and there was always, you know, weeds that were germinated and we have, would have to maintain it and remove those weeds. Carex woodii, those rhizomes are a lot shorter. So those mats are a lot thicker and we rarely, if ever saw any weed um, germination in those mats of foliage. So that's, that got a big check from us for the ability to suppress weeds. Um, the foliage is actually quite attractive on Carex woodii. It comes up kind of like a, a nice blue green. Carex pensilvanica is very grassy green throughout the season. Nothing wrong with that at all, but woodii just has a slight ornamental edge in that, in that situation. Um, and then, as I mentioned, flowers for us were kind of a bonus. It wasn't necessarily something we were evaluating separately. We just kind of thought of them as, you know, it was a nice thing to see if we did see some attractive Carex flowers and we took note of it, but they weren't getting extra points for it. Carex woodii in particular, those flowers were spectacular. Um, they were, you know, they create these beautiful straw colored flowers that come just above the, the foliage. So they're, you know, very obvious and they just create these beautiful mats of flowers. Um, and they would be a perfect complement for other early spring flowering perennials. Um, Carex pennsylvanica, again, we're not growing these carrots for their flowers, but Carex pennsylvanica flowers are relatively nondescript. Um, and it would be very easy to miss them if you weren't looking for them. So again, Carex woodii, just a slight ornamental edge over Carex pennsylvanica. I should say though, we did have a cultivar of Carex pennsylvanica called straw hat that was introduced by Brent Horvath at Intrinsic Perennial Gardens. I mean, it had beautiful flowers. So much more ornamental flowers than the typical straight species. Um, it didn't spread as much towards sort of the middle ground between a spreading plant and clumping plant, beautiful plant. Um, if you can track it down in the nursery trade, um, but it's very similar plants, to, uh, flowers to Carex woodii, very ornamental, um, and really kind of one of those plants where, again, we're not growing it for those flowers, but maybe for those two species or that species in that, that cultivar might be worth growing it for those flowers. Um, yeah. So, and the Carex woodii, this doesn't didn't necessarily factor into its overall score. Handled the mowing beautifully. It was spectacular in full sun and shade. Um, unfortunately, Carex woodii is not as available as Carex pennsylvanica in the trade, although we do hope that that will change in the future and it will become more commercially available going forward. Interesting. Anyway, is there somewhere that maybe our listeners might try to look for Carex woodii? Is there just maybe like some niche native perennial markets? Is that what you would suggest? 
Yeah, there's there's a few of them out here. Um, most of them are sold out at the moment, um, but uh, we got ours from New Moon Nursery in New Jersey. Um, I would keep an eye. I'm not sure if Isle plants, um, Isle native plants, ships to Canada, but it's something to look out for as well. Um, Isle does a great job. They're basically um, a hub for distribution of wholesale plant materials to a retail market. So as a homeowner, I could log on to Isle's website and you know, search for Carex and you could come up with all these different wholesale nurseries that are growing Carex species and order a flat of it as a homeowner without needing that wholesale account, which is wonderful. Um, there's other uh, another website and another nursery that I think is really spectacular, uh, really a wonderful source for information on Carex. And if you're interested in growing Carex from seed is a really, really great resource is Prairie Moon Nursery. Yeah. Um, that's another really good one. Again, if you're if you're looking for information, if you want to buy seed, Carex seed can be a little bit challenging, but it's a great way to add a lot of your plant, a lot of plants to your garden and a relatively, um, relatively inexpensively. Um, and it's definitely worth trying out. Okay. So Wonderful. do you think, is it easy? Like, so it is challenging to grow from seed for your typical homeowners? It can be. It's just a, a lot of them do need a cold treatment. So as with a lot of our other native perennials, they need that kind of cold, moist stratification period over the winter, which can be as straightforward as putting them in the refrigerator over the winter or direct sowing that seed um, in the fall into a garden bed and kind of letting it go through that natural um, fluctuation of temperature throughout the, the next couple of seasons. And hopefully you'll see some germination the next year. Some carrots are a little bit slow to get going, but once they do, they, you know, they'll establish rather quickly um, and there'll be tough garden plants as we saw in the trial garden. And I should mention from our trials, we did grow a handful of these plants from seed, but a lot of them started off at roughly a plug size to a quart size. Um, so these are relatively small plants when they started, but they were quite robust by the end of the five years. Okay. Amazing. As we hit the last few minutes that we have you, uh, is there any other amazing research project that you're excited about going on at Mount Cuba? Absolutely. There's always new things happening, which is one of the reasons I love my job so much, because we're always learning. There's always new things going on. Um, so, you know, Carex is wrapped up, um, but we're still talking about them. There's so many, still a lot of cool um, information to share. Um, but I'm really excited about some of the things that are replacing Carex. Um, so in the sun, uh, where we had the Carex planted, we actually just replaced them with uh, a, milk, a milkweed trial, which Ooh. I'm really, really excited about. Um, yeah. We've, we bought, I think it was, it's 25 different types of milkweeds that we just went to the commercial world and and purchased and included in this trial. So as a homeowner, these are the plants you could access today um, that would be suitable for average garden conditions. Um, and our goal is, you know, not just to see how these plants would perform from a horticultural and ornamental perspective, but we're really interested in knowing which ones these plants are going to be able to support monarch butterflies the best in the home landscape. Um, just okay. again, to help homeowners make good informed decisions. A lot of people want to help the monarchs and we're going to try to give people the best information about how to do that uh, most efficiently, especially if you don't have a lot of space. If you can only include one milkweed, you know, this is the one to use, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is really fun and really exciting. And then the um, in the shade, we're going to replace the Carex um, trial and our under our shade structure with a large fern evaluation, which is going to be really Ooh. fun too. I think it's going to okay. fill kind of a similar niche to Carex. Another kind of maybe not the plant that takes center stage in our home landscape, but another important and critical component mm -hmm. to especially shade um, gardens. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing I thought when you said fern, just one of those classic underused plants that people yep. just stay away from. They don't know enough about. 
uh, and where to start with them. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it, I'm, and that's one of the things too. I don't know a whole lot about ferns, which is ah. one of the reasons I'm so excited about this yes. trial because I get to learn all about ferns. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's really exciting. And we have a couple ongoing trials. Um, we are evaluating goldenrods. We have 70 different goldenrods in the trial garden right now. And we have 45 different ironweeds as well. And ironweed will be the next trial that'll wrap up and we'll have um, a research report coming up next on that. And then we have a uh, trial on oak leaf hydrangeas as well that's going on oh, right now. That'll cool. that's just finished its first of five okay. seasons. Yeah. yeah. So you do shrubs as well then, so not just perennials. Yeah, we just we just did our first um, shrub trial, which was with hydrangea arborescence, um, and that wrapped up uh, last year. Um, and that was a lot of fun, and that was the first time again for our first shrub trial. But we're going to continue that um, that theme. We'll always have a shrub or woody plant presence. Um, in the trial garden and oak leaf hydrangeas is on right now. And one of my favorite shrubs, um, mm -hmm. for, you know, in my home landscape, a good multi-season plant. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of variation out there in the commercial world. And it's going to be really interesting, you know, seeing what these plants do over five years, not just from an ornamental perspective, but again, which plants are going to be able to support wildlife the best um, in a home landscape. Wonderful. wonderful. So many exciting things coming out from Mount Cuba Center. So stay tuned, everyone. Especially yeah. with lots of free research uh, and plant lists. So Sam, just before we say goodbye, is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners about, make them aware of? Absolutely. Well, if you're in Delaware, please come visit us. Um, we are open from April 1st through about Thanksgiving. Um, and you don't have to wait for us to be open to interact with Mount Cuba Center. Like I said, all of our research is on the website. And we also have a lot of virtual classes and events that you can tune in on. Um, so Mount Cuba Center, mtcubacenter.org slash programs. You can see a comprehensive list of all of these new classes and programs that are coming up. Um, really great way to interact with Mount Cuba Center, even if you aren't local. So take a look. Um, and we'd love to see you in the garden. Oh, that's great. Sam, wait, pl please promise you'll come back. Oh, I'd love to. Anytime. Oh, yeah, this this is this is exactly what we want to do here on Down the Garden Path is like spread words like the you know, spread the news and and because uh, I just Googled our one of our large grower here in Ontario and they are not growing Carex Woodyi. So uh so <laughs> hopefully yeah. it'll catch on. Now, <laughs> hopefully I, it'll catch yeah. on. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. Awesome. Well, we look forward to having you back to talk about all the amazing things coming up. Uh, I think the milkweed one, I think our listeners have already pinged that mm -hmm. into their into their orbit. So that's amazing. Thank you so much, Sam, for joining us. Thanks again. Okay. Bye for now. <laughs> Take care, Sam. Well, hello, listeners, and thank you for joining us here on uh, Down the Garden Path. We are now entering, we've said goodbye to Sam, and we're going to do our stepping stone segment, um, which we want you to stick around. If we didn't get to your questions while well, we had the guests, then we definitely want to answer your questions um, quickly now. And, um, and we've got some other exciting news to share before we wrap up at 8 o'clock, right, Matt? That's right. That's right. So we do have a, a number of listener questions. Thank you, everybody, for the number mm -hmm. of uh, listener questions uh, that we sent in. Thank you for those. Uh, we'll get right to the right to them. Carl has asked, following up on ornamental grasses, can you grow ornamental grasses in containers? Uh, yeah, Carl, you definitely can. Both the annuals and the perennials uh, in your containers. They make a great centerpiece, especially some of the taller perennial or annual ones. I think uh, immediately I think of uh, the centrus, our purple fountain grass. 
that uh, looks beautiful, very quick growing, nice rich purple foliage. But yeah, again, take a look at some of those Carexes. I've used Carexes in container grow uh, container mixes with perennials and annuals, some beautiful foliage. So you definitely can. Just watch the hardiness zone. I mean, the annuals are going to die. You might be able to overwinter them in a garage or a warmer greenhouse kind of area. But the perennial ones you can also just buy that are two zones lower. Or again, just quickly uh, lift them out of that container and put them uh, in the ground. Or leave them. Maybe that's part of your, your winter arrangement with some other evergreens or evergreen foliage type stuff too. Yeah, that's so right. Thank yeah. you very much, Carl. And Karen uh, is wondering about, uh, she's enjoying the uh, our show tonight, and she's asking about how do I keep my ornamental grass from flopping over? Ooh, flopping over. Well, which one do you have, Karen? Yes. Uh, yeah, you, some of them are a little bit more open. I very quickly go to uh, Miss Canthus sinensis, the strictus uh, versus the brennus, the, the porcupine grass with the large miscanthus mm -hmm. with the bands. Um, porcupine tends to stay much, much tighter naturally than the zebra grass. It tends to open with age and get some openings in the middle and it kind of flops over, loses some stems that way. So sometimes it can be very much the species. Uh, do you have it in a windy location? Uh, do you have the right conditions that it will like, which will go to fortifying and making sure the plant has that optimal condition to, to be its best? Is, is it in the full sun that we want? Again, most of those ornamental grasses are sun loving. They like all that sun. Uh, versus our carrots, some of our carrots, which like that shade a little bit more. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and I'd also say if you um, if you baby them, if you're giving them fertilizer mm -hmm. or too much water, then they are like that's not you know what I mean. Then you will tend to create unfortunately a, like a weaker plant in my my experience. So they really do thrive on neglect. They thrive on dry conditions. Um, so if they're taller grasses, uh, Karen, then then sticking to to something like that and making sure it's not in a wet area it's uh um you don't need to you know give it a lot of compost or fertilizer or anything like that they they thrive and kind of in in the poorer conditions which is you know a good feature um but definitely look at some of the varieties um because even i think of shenandoah um mm -hmm. it also like the first couple years it's fine but then year three and four they do start to fall over a little bit um, so yeah, so I, I, that's one of the reasons why I love the Calamagrastus one so much, like Carl and, and Overdam and, and they tend to be a little bit more, uh, you know, vertical, right? They yeah. do very, very well. I was motioning like a uh, kind of noise to Joanne because yes. they're everywhere around us. Yes, they yeah, are they are being overplanted. Yeah. But that's a reason why. So, yes, because uh, they are so tough. Yes, and considering we're talking about lawns, Matt, should we end with Brett uh, and his question about spring fertilizer? I'm going to say no, it's still too early. <laughs> too early to put spring fertilizer. Yes, uh, even though the ground is frozen, we don't even want to, A, we don't want to put anything down just yet because we're going to get the wash away and some flood. But also, Brett, we want to start with our fall fertilizer again if you didn't put any down before. So hopefully you did your winter fertilizing, which is gonna put a second dose of your fall fertilizer on. That'll be on again now. 
as our grass is slowly waking up and our lawns are squishy that we don't want to be out on. Uh, so hopefully she's already got some food. And then spring fertilizer, again, depending on where you are, Brett, uh, here in the GTA, it's that May 2-4 weekend where the grass starts to get up to that two inches, nice and thick and green. That's when we start to want to really get out there. It's not spongy. Mm -hmm. She's actively growing. She's ready to give you that spring push. That's when she'll feed for that nice spring fertilizer. So you do have some time yet. You do have some time yet. Yes. Stay <laughs> off the grass. It's not even Valentine's Day, which is tomorrow. But uh, yeah, and we do as in the last couple minutes, we're going to rush through some of our announcements, but you can read more about them in our show notes as well. You are now uh, um, have the option of watching or listening to our show on YouTube, not watching. You're not going to see us. It's still going to yes. be audio only. Um, you can watch our graphic, but uh, yeah, so the show is now available on YouTube. So if you missed it, you came in partway through through and you don't download off of uh, onto a podcast and you want to listen on YouTube, then check us out. Uh, Matt, what's the address? That's right. You can just search down the garden path podcast or at down the garden path podcast. Uh, and you will find our YouTube channel. So we are posting there and uh, it is my job to slowly populate past episodes. So uh, if you want to see more, we will be adding a lot more content shortly. So definitely check in regularly and stay tuned. That's right. And our next biggest announcement. Yes, another app. You know what? We've had some questions about how uh, some of our listeners can support us and the podcast. Uh, so we've decided to open a Patreon account. So uh, we have a couple of things there. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's basically one of those sites where you can log on and subscribe and buy Matt and Joanne a coffee for a couple of bucks and support the podcast and our efforts here. Uh, but we also have a tier for uh, a $10 subscription where Joanne and I are going to hang out after our month in the garden episode. We're going to share a live Zoom link and for 30 or 20 to 30 minutes, uh, we'll have a private group session about whatever you want to talk about. Maybe you want to share some pictures, you have some unrelated questions, mm -hmm. uh, or you just want to talk, share some jokes and, and just interact with us. So we're going to have that as well. So you mm -hmm. can check us out, Patreon at Down the Garden path podcast as well so our handle facebook instagram uh youtube and patreon at down the garden path podcast from mm -hmm. there. yeah we thought the design dilemmas you know that for 10 bucks you get two landscape designers for yeah. a half an hour 20 minutes to half an hour to ask any questions you need uh certainly a good uh use of your time and uh so yeah so we're excited to bring that to you um, we love that you join us here. We love that you email us through the week. Um, please also visit our Facebook page and post questions and memes there. We'd love that as well. We're trying to hang out there more often uh, for our listeners that are there. But what a great show. Um, I can't wait to have Sam back. Yes, Sam will definitely be back with lots of interesting plans. Definitely check out your characters. Uh, Joanne and I definitely designed with our characters and are even more inspired to do so in the future Absolutely. now after talking to Sam. Thank you everybody again uh, for joining us here on Reality Radio 101. We'll see you next week, same time as we talk with Katie DeBow and all the trends, the Garden Trends Report for 2023. See what's trending next Monday. Until then, have a wonderful week. Happy Valentine's Day from everybody here at Down the Garden Path and uh, we'll see you then. Take care.
listening to Down the Garden Path with your hosts, Joanne Shaw and Matthew Dressing, right here on Reality Radio 101.